we begin with prayer this morning. Our Father God, you are truly the ruler of heaven and of earth. You are the ruler of our lives. And given your goodness, your righteousness, it is the kind of sovereignty that we gladly fall under and place ourselves into your care. We worship you this morning because of who you are, a father to your people, a redeemer to the lost. We give you praise for providing your son who so thoroughly and adequately represented us on his cross bearing our sins. And we gather this morning in praise and worship of the spirit that now indwells us, the spirit of the living God, who directs us in the paths of truth that enables us by your grace to walk in the ways and the paths of our God, the paths of righteousness. And we pray that you will help us to do so as we take our journey through your word this morning. Grant me the ability to speak clearly and well on things before us in your word, but open each of our hearts to receive truth from you, to walk in that truth, and perhaps some even to accept that truth, the truth of the gospel by faith, even this morning. We pray this for your glory, your honor, and for your kingdom's sake. Amen. Um, If you would join me in Romans chapter 8, and as you're turning there, I don't think it has been yet said that uh, the elders have examined and approved Pastor Tyler to be a full elder now. We have a kind of a policy at this church that uh, when we take on a new associate pastor, they have kind of a one-year examination period. The elders have examined and have approved uh, Tyler to be a full elder among us. And I have to say, for me personally, I've enjoyed working with Tyler. I enjoy his friendship. I truly enjoy his faithfulness with God's word and his hunger and desire for uh, discipleship. That being said, he will be preaching for me next Sunday. Debbie and I will be traveling over to Republic to meet with Pastor Craig Loftus and Sharon and to discuss some of the changes in their ministry. And then I'm going to preach for his church on Sunday. So Tyler will be covering for me next Sunday. That's my little promo for Tyler. You're welcome, Tyler. Where are you? Thanks for the tip. (laughs) Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. 
If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I don't think it's difficult for any one of us to know and to experience this life and to understand that it is filled with trouble, heartache, disappointments, and pain. And very often for us as believers, it's easy to get caught up in the troubles, the sorrows, and the sourness of life, almost to the extent that it consumes us. And we become overcome sometimes with anxiety, sometimes fear, discouragement, depression, sleeplessness. There are even physical manifestations that can overcome us because of the troubles in life. And I remember, this was years ago, I don't even know what book I saw this in, but I remember reading a phrase, it was a question given to the reader, and it goes something like this, I would be happy in this life if I just had blank. And the author was asking, what would do that? What would you fill into that blank? What would give you that happiness in this life? And most likely, many of us would look at the great troubles in our life, and I'd say, I'll fill in the blank with what I'd love to be free of. I wish I could be free of that thing. It could be a health issue, a family issue, a marital issue, children, finances, job, our boss. It could be any number of things that we are disappointed in this life and that seem to overtake us and consume our thoughts and our minds and our troubles to the point that it tears us down. I would be happy in this life if I could just have what? I want you to look at verse 1 of Romans chapter 8 and understand that God has given us far, far more than we have probably recognized by his grace. How much do we appreciate his grace? And what we're going to see in Romans chapter 8 is a passage that is filled with grace. And I'm going to note that in just a moment. But I'm going to challenge us with this one thought. If we had none of those graces, if God promised to deal with none of our issues in this life, if God did not give himself to minister to us, and he made no guarantees for anything except what we see in, in verse 1. Would that not be enough? Would it not be enough to hear God say there is no more condemnation for you? Forget about the troubles of this life. Is that not enough? And I suspect if we're truly saved this morning, we'd say yes. My troubles aside, these temporal griefs aside, if my God were to say to me that because you are in my son, I do not condemn you forever, that would be enough. Fortunately for us as believers, that's not all there is to the Christian faith. But I think in reality, to say that God does not condemn me means that I have free access to him. There's nothing standing between me and him. That eternity is spent with him because there's nothing holding me away from him. There's nothing keeping me from fellowship. This is going to be the context of Romans chapter 8 as we roll into this most amazing chapter. How often do we consider that we have been delivered as believers from condemnation? 
How often do we consider that we don't deserve this from God? We deserve nothing from Him. And yet here it is. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If that's all we got from God, would that not be enough? And yet we have so, so much more. And I have to wonder, even in myself, why do the troubles of this life so consume me? This is what chapter 8 is going to minister to us about. Just stop and think about the overflow of God's grace that is going to come in this chapter that starts with no condemnation. And if you jump to verse 39, what does it tell you? Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from his love. And in between verse 1 and verse 39, we're going to see the ministry of the Holy Spirit by God's grace, empowering us to live in righteousness, enabling us to overcome sin. We see the intercession of the Spirit even in our prayer life. We don't know how to pray, but the Spirit speaks on our behalf. We see the promise of God that he will work all things together for our good. He'll work them all together for good. It's a promise of God. And it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And we think about the troubles of this life. Again, most of those troubles involve somebody else that is just bringing grief and hardship into our life. But what does it say here in Romans 8? If God is for me, who's going to stand against me? What is that concern to me if God is for me? And then we see at the end of the chapter that expression, that exposition of God's unending, unbreakable, eternal love for me. No matter if I fail him tomorrow, no matter if I ignore his commandments next month, he will still love me. It won't be broken. This is a passage that is filled with God's grace. It's a chapter that shows us, in my view, the security that we have in Christ. That no matter what takes place, when I'm in Christ, when I'm found in the Son of God, God has bathed me in grace. It's, Paul is revealing to us a life of victory and, and the glory of what it means to belong to the Savior what it means to be no longer under the condemnation of God that I actually deserve and that will nothing, nothing will separate me from God's love that I don't deserve. This is a chapter that shows us what it means to be secure in God and before his throne of grace. If we could bring up on the board, and this is something I've included on the online note sheet so you can refer to it there, but there's a number of different authors that have looked at Romans chapter 8. This is just a few of those that I found this week. James Boyce refers to Romans 8 as the greatest chapter in the Bible. I don't know if I can say that, but he sees Romans 8 as the greatest chapter in the Bible. Martin Luther calls it the masterpiece of the New Testament. Douglas Moo describes chapter 8 as the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of Christian faith. It's almost like we're going into the Holy of Holies, he's saying. Martin Lloyd-Jones regards it as the most moving chapter. And the American theologian Charles Hodge writes that as Paul finishes the first seven chapters on doctrine of the gospel itself, he said he, Paul, leaves in the chapter before us, the field of logical argument 
and enters on the new and more elevated sphere of joyous exaltation. That is to say, Paul has spent seven chapters writing, arguing logically for the gospel of justification by faith alone apart from works. And now, chapter 8, we enter into this joyous exaltation of what the gospel accomplishes in the believer's life, bringing with it the work of the Spirit of grace into our lives and in such abundance. It's a chapter that begins by explaining how we have been set free from eternal condemnation, again, that we deserve, and taking us all the way to the end of the chapter with a love that we don't deserve. So in my mind, this chapter is about the security that the gospel guarantees for us and the joyful, if not grace-filled, benefits that this security brings into our lives. And I think when we truly understand what is promised here in Christ, and I hope this is my testimony too, that the disappointments of this life become far more insignificant when I realize this is what I have in Christ. This is what he's done. And we rejoice with thankful hearts for our freedom in Christ. In the first four verses of Romans chapter 8, Paul returns to the subject, you will notice, of believer's freedom. His use of pronouns here, makes clear that he is writing to all believers who have been justified by faith and who are now at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. In verse 1 of chapter 8, Paul speaks of a divine ruling regarding this freedom. And in that declaration, verse 2 to 3 offers an explanation of that ruling, that declaration. And in, chapter, in verse 4, he shows us what this freedom will produce as a work of God in the lives of his people. This is what we're going to look at this morning. The first four verses, beginning with the ruling that declares us to be free in verse 1. This is where we're given an emphatic declaration of heaven's ruling in our favor as gospel believers. And it's of note that Paul picks up here in the first four verses, again with the discussion of being set free. And I say interesting or of note because the previous verses that we looked at at the end of chapter 7 referred to our bondage and sin while we are in the flesh, referring to our humanity. Yet here in chapter 8, he opens up by writing of a law that has set us free from the law of sin and death. Now, the clear distinction between these two freedom and bondages, if you will, is that verse 2 is an explanation of Paul's declaration that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He first states the declaration, verse 1, no condemnation. Then you see the word for in verse 2 and verse 3. He's going to go on to explain that declaration. And that explanation is in the context that believers have been set free. End of chapter 7, bondage to sin in the flesh. Chapter 8, verse 2, we've been set free. Now, as pointed out by many others, the therefore at the beginning of chapter 8 is a reflection Paul has of the past seven chapters. We tend to think when there's a therefore, you look at the immediate context prior to that declaration. And very often that is the case. And I believe that what Paul ended in verse or chapter 7 
is included in that therefore. But I have to agree with the many scholars who say really Paul is looking in a much, much broader sense back through all seven chapters when he says, therefore. He's looking at the whole of the gospel doctrine of justification. He's examining that none of us are worthy. None of us can keep the laws of God. He's looking at man's sin problem, Jew and Gentile alike. And that in chapter 5 even, we entered into this problem of sin through our father Abraham. And with that sin came the judgment or the condemnation of death. All of these things are coming together even in the first four verses. And you can see it in the first four verses because Paul has a, a broader general understanding than simply what was said at the end of chapter 7. And I see three important truths to this powerful declaration in verse 1. Beginning with, there is now no condemnation. The now and the no is a specific time reference. And it suggests that before, before this took place, before this ruling of heaven, we were under condemnation, which we already know to be a reality for all humanity. Paul has spent the past seven chapters telling us so. He's gone to great lengths in the first part of Romans to show all men, Jew and Gentile alike, all of us are held captive to sin, we're under the judgment of God as a result, hence there is death. Chapter 5 in particular traces this problem back to Adam who because of his sin brought sin and death into humanity. If you look again at chapter 5 and verse 18, you will notice the word condemnation. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. So we know when we get to chapter 8 and verse 1 where it says now there is no condemnation, we recognize once we were condemned. Like all men, we were condemned. In Ephesians chapter 2 and I'd like you to turn there, Ephesians chapter 2, we're very familiar with those first 3 verses of Ephesians 2 which explains our problem or the doctrine of sin. Theologians call that homardiology. It's the study of the sin nature that all of us struggle with. And as a result, all men and women are called children of what? Wrath. Children of God's wrath. That was us before Christ. But I want you to notice Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, how Paul makes that clear. We've read these verses many times. But as I read these, note how we were there once. The language is all there for us. As it says, and you were dead. In your trespasses and sin. We were there once, weren't we? In which you were formerly walking according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. And of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That was us. Under the power, the influence of Satan himself. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our own flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. The rest of who? The rest of humanity. We were part of it. We were there. We were condemned. And that's clearly a description of what we were prior to faith in Christ, under the wrath of God, like the rest of humanity, condemned by God in our sin, and facing internal judgment, an eternal judgment that we deserve. It's what we deserve. But 
The declaration of verse 1 in chapter 8 is that now there is no longer condemnation. And that word no, that little two-letter word no before condemnation is a strongly emphatic negative statement in the Greek language which joined with the timing of now, there is now no It carries the idea of complete cessation, as Pastor John MacArthur writes. It has completely ceased, this condemnation. So this speaks to a present status we have before the throne of God at this moment that's going to remain unchanged throughout all of eternity. I'm saying again, that in itself would be enough. This moment into eternity, no condemnation. For that little weasel, Monty, and how he's defied the laws of God. This explains the bursting forth of grateful praise by Paul in chapter 7, verse 25. After considering his wrestling match with sin, even in the present tense, wretched man that I am, he said, who's going to take me out of this mess? And how does he respond to that? But thanks be to God. He could have said, but thanks be to God, I am no longer under condemnation. But he was rejoicing then in a thankfulness to God that his flesh even, his body's going to be redeemed. It's going to be resurrected out of the grave. Why can he say that? Why can he give thanks to God for that? Well, because he immediately turns and says, therefore, there is no condemnation for any of us that are found in Christ. I'm not condemned. God has no reason not to raise my body for the grave in glory. God has no reason to keep me out of his heaven, to love me, to bathe me in his grace, or to grant me his spirit to live within me. Knowing who I am, I wouldn't ask the spirit to come and live in me. It's not fit for him, but God has made it fit. Isn't that the mystery of the gospel? That God has made you fit that he's going to come and dwell in your heart. I think that's why I like Charles Hodge's expression. The inner sanctuary. We're entering into this glorious state or this glorious expression where God declares in his courtroom of justice. There's no condemnation for that one. And building upon this attitude of praise is the reality for believers that we're never going to know condemnation. From this day forward, you're never going to know it. Oh, God may discipline, he may chasten us out of his love for his children. But from this moment forward, I will never know the taste of condemnation. And this brings us to that second expression. No condemnation. The gratitude that flows from the declaration of verse 1 comes from the force and the impact of the word condemn you and I might condemn someone but those are just words and it might have a limited impact on any one of you said I, if I said to you I condemn you okay just words but if you go into a court of law and the judge says I condemn you it's going to be a little different because not just words are spoken but what follows is a sentence a sentence that may be severe or it may be lenient But when the word condemnation is used in reference to the penalty for sin, there is a legal or a forensic meaning to it as well. The word condemnation brings us right into the courtroom of God's perfect justice where 
Our sins make us accused before him. We're standing with undeniable guilt for our crimes against God. In the Greek, the word means an adverse sentence or verdict. God is not only going to proclaim that verdict against us because of our sins, but there is a sentence to follow. And that sentence is death. It is eternal death. It's eternal judgment. It's the wrath of God. The unending fires of hell itself. That's what condemnation looks like before the throne of God's justice. Leon Morris writes in his commentary, commentary, Condemnation is a forensic. It's a legal term which here includes both the sentence, the declaration, and the execution of that sentence. In a spiritual sense, then, if we were to stand condemned before God as the unsaved world continues to be, God is not only declaring them guilty, he's going to sentence them to eternal hell, eternal damnation, but not to the believer. And this is the joy of what it means to be in Christ. Sinful humanity not only has been declared guilty by God, it has been already sentenced to eternal damnation. And this includes every believer in Jesus Christ. We were there. We were guilty. We were condemned. But in chapter 8, verse 1, no longer. Because why? We are in Christ. There is no condemnation. That expression is the ruling of heaven. And it has not declared us, notice, not guilty. It has not declared us not guilty because we are guilty. We were and we are guilty before God. But when we're in Christ, that guilt is set aside. And the verdict comes down with the gavel of God saying, not condemned. Because you're in Christ. You're found in my son. And what makes this ruling of no condemnation possible is that we are found, and this is our third expression, we're found in Christ Jesus. For those and only those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no longer any condemnation again forever. The charges have been dropped. The penalty completely excused. There is no need to explain that this ruling is only for those in Christ because Paul has spent seven chapters showing it to us already. Neither Jew nor Gentile can by their own works, their own merits, earn the favor of God's grace. It can't happen. And he's clearly shown that there is simply no person born among men that can remedy man's sin problem in and of themselves. Adding to this, Paul started this letter and continued to build upon this doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone as a foundation of the gospel. It's how he started this letter. And it's said that Paul has used the expression in Christ some 164 times in his writings. To be in Christ was fundamental to the gospel. It still is. But I think Romans chapter 6 is perhaps one of the most expressive descriptions if we could go back there just for a moment and hear the words of Paul as he puts this into such expressive language what it means to be in Christ such that God would say of me not condemned that one why Paul says in Romans chapter 6 beginning verse 3 down through verse 7 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, and think of that word immersed into Christ Jesus, have been immersed or baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him or immersed with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. This is the idea of being immersed into Christ by faith. When we are united, joined with him in Christ, it means we come under, come under his blood sacrifice. I've died to the old person of sin because Christ first died bearing my sin, paying the penalty fully for those sins, past, present, future. And I've been raised up in Christ, now freed from that sin, spiritually speaking. Yes, I struggle with sin in the flesh. Paul made that clear at the end of chapter 7. But spiritually, I've been raised up in Christ, freed from sin. And this is where the gavel of God comes down and say, no condemnation. Why? Because I'm found in Christ. I'm not laboring for my own salvation. I'm not doing the works of God to merit his grace. But rather, like the branch attached to the vine, I'm in Christ. And he's done the work for me. So that God looks at me and says, there's a sinner, but he's in my son. I will not condemn him forever. Again, no condemnation. It's enough isn't it? It's enough. And then Paul goes on to explain no condemnation for us in verse 2 to 3 as he shows us the rescue that set us free from condemnation. This union with Christ by the believer is carried into these verses where Paul shows us that we are set free because of the sacrifice Jesus Christ made for his people. And we note that at the beginning of both of those verses, the word for. In other words, he's about to explain something to us. He's about to explain no condemnation for these pathetic sinners that should be condemned, that deserve to be condemned, that have earned that condemnation. How is it possible for God to say no condemnation? For Christ, for his sacrifice, for this rescue. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, notice in Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. He did what we could not do, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He, Christ, condemned my sin in the flesh. From these two verses, I want us to note the laws that are in view here, and secondly, the work of God that is in view. First, the law of life and death. Paul's explanation of God ruling toward those found in Christ comes to us in this language of laws. And these laws can be seen as principles, as we saw last week in our study of chapter 7. But it is the law of the Holy Spirit 
here that has set us free from the law of sin and death. One law has set us free from another. These laws can also be understood as principles of operation. On the one hand, the principle of how the Spirit of God operates, and on the other hand, the principle involving sin and death. And just as verse 1 ended, so verse 2 finds us still in Christ, so that we know those who are set free from the law of sin and death are only those found in Christ. And this is why by the gospel we appeal to unsaved people, turn to Christ, put yourself by faith into Christ, because this is man's only hope, and it's a hope that is sufficient. It's enough. It's enough that God would say to the guilty, no condemnation. To understand the law of the Spirit, we need to understand the law of sin and death. Now, if you go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul has already introduced us to the principle of sin and death. For the wages of sin is death. What sin has earned us is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because all have sinned against God, all must pay the penalty or the wages of those sin, which is death. And this is not only physical death, But more importantly, it is spiritual death that is eternal. The body of flesh will most certainly die as a result of sin. But the inner man will also die or be eternally separated from the God of life. Remember, this is the spirit of life in verse 2 that we're talking about. And the spiritual death will be marked by the punishment of God's perfect justice. So that men and women who reject the only salvation provided by God's grace are going to come under the eternal torment of God's wrath. The fact that this is referred to as the law of sin and of death means that this is the sure and certain condemnation against all men because of sin. What is sin going to produce? Of most certainty, it is death physical death, but spiritual and eternal death as well. The law of the spirit of life is the work of God to deliver sinners out from under that law of sin and of death. The Holy Spirit here again is called the spirit of life because he will raise up sinners from that spiritual death, causing them to be what? John chapter 3, born again. The Spirit brings the sinner into union with Christ. This is what Paul is saying in verse 2 and 3. The Spirit of life brings us in union with Christ, immerses us into Christ, setting them free from the law of sin and of death. So the resurrected believer is raised up to spiritual life because of their union with the risen Savior. Believers are no longer under the condemnation of God because the Spirit of God has joined them with Christ the Christ who died and rose again for the sins of his people. Those joined with Christ by the Spirit have also died to their bondage to sin, and they've been raised up again, freed from sin. Chapter 6, verse 7. It is the Spirit of life that accomplishes the liberation or the setting free of the sinner from the law of sin and death. But second, I want us to know it's not just the laws that are noted here, but the work of God 
That's the essential part of this. God did for us what man could not do for himself. And these two verses show us, I want you to notice, the work of Father, of Son, and of Spirit. This is the triune God at work on behalf of sinners. God is the one who gave his law. The Father has given his law to man. A law that man could not keep. And the law that even inspired men all the more to break his commandments. And we've already seen this, that God gave that law to show us what sin is and the sinfulness of men as sinners. He did this to show the utter sinfulness of sin, as it said in chapter 7. This was a law that Paul writes is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. And it was given to man by God to show man's inability to save himself or for man to do what is holy, righteous, and good. God sent his law to show man they need a savior that is not of fallen humanity. It has to be somebody other than themselves, other than somebody that needs themselves to be saved. But God not only sent his unkeepable law, notice he sent his son. God sent his son, it says there in verse 2 and 3, to be the savior of humanity. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, verse 3. Paul does not mean that God's son came in the likeness of sinfulness, for as we see in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, Christ came into our world to become one of us, yet he did so without sin. And Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that God made his son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. God's Son, being sent by the Father, came to our world as one of us. He came in human flesh, even experiencing the temptations that we face in our humanity so that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. This is again Hebrews. Even though Jesus Christ did not sin, he felt what we feel when we face temptation. He experienced our weakness so that he can be our sympathetic high priest. It was also his sinlessness that allowed him to be the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins on the cross of his suffering. What made Christ successful on the cross? It wasn't just that he carried our sins, but he was the undefiled one that carried our sins. The pure and holy one became defiled with our sin on the cross to be our substitute to atone for our sins. And this is what is meant by Jesus becoming sin for us. So the Father sent, the Son came, took on humanity, and bore our sins. Isaiah 53, verse 6, it prophesied of the Messiah, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Son of God becomes defiled with our iniquity. He came to our world in the likeness of our sinful flesh, yet he committed no sin, but rather took our sin upon himself. And on the cross, God transferred all the sins of all his elect to his son, causing the sinless one to become sin for us. I don't fully even understand that wording that comes in scripture that way. He became sin for us. And he did so without sin. 
Jesus then received our punishment for the sins that we have committed. And it says in Colossians 2 verse 14 that our sin debt, all of it, was nailed to the cross where Jesus condemns sin in the flesh by setting free his people from its bondage. He did this by his death on the cross, presenting himself as the substitute offering for our sin. And this sacrifice, accomplished by the Son of God, who was sent by God the Father, makes it possible then for the Spirit of God to set us free by raising us up with Christ and joining us to his death, Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. To men and women like you and me, these are truths that we read, we can trust them, but we cannot accomplish them. Imagine what has taken place here. It's not just imagining. We understand what is taking place here within the Godhead. God sends his son. His son takes on humanity. The father places our sins on him. And he dies making atonement for our sins. These are words to us, words we trust in. But you realize you couldn't affect a single one of them. We can't do this stuff. This is all the work of the triune God, and it's well beyond our ability to achieve. We could never set ourselves free from the law of sin and death. Only God can accomplish this work of freedom. And he did so on our behalf through his son's sacrifice and by the life-giving ministry of his spirit. And I would say also, only God can say no condemnation. That's his declaration. And it is his alone, not just to say it, but to remove the sentence from us. Only God can do this. This is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to set us free. And verse 4 brings us to the result, the finish, the product that marks us as a free people. So that, notice those words, so that. It's a purpose clause. So there's no condemnation. Paul explains why there is no condemnation because we're found in Christ. There's the rescue. But what's the purpose? It's all been done. The gospel, the redemption, the rescue of sinners is accomplished so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The sinner has been rescued from the condemnation of sin by the work of God's redemption, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, again, there's some disagreement on that first phrase in chapter 4. But the focus seems to be the believer's sanctification that is now enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is certainly where Paul takes us in the next verses, the next section of Romans chapter 8. This is about the power of the Holy Spirit that is granted to us to deliver us from the problem that is in the end of chapter 7. we got this problem with sin in the flesh still. Do we look at ourselves in despair and say, I'm just a worm, I can do nothing? Paul says, no, look, no condemnation. This is the work of the gospel. You've been redeemed and rescued by the cross of God's Son. And the Spirit has intervened on your behalf. He's the one that came to you who are dead in your trespasses and sin. He's the one that raised you up in life, granted you faith to believe. 
united you with Christ. Why would he do this? So that. So that. This is now reflecting on our sanctification. We can walk by the power of the Spirit. The thought goes something like this. As believers, we have been rescued from the condemnation, dominion of sin by the redemptive and justifying work of the Father, Son, and Spirit so that we can walk in the ways of righteousness, a walk that we could never accomplish apart from the gospel. We couldn't do this on our own. But we have been saved and now indwelt by the Spirit so we can do this. We couldn't do the law before. Now we can do the law. We can walk in righteousness and holiness and goodness. The clear argument of chapter 7 is that the commandments of God are righteous, but we just couldn't keep them. They could only show us how unrighteous we are. But here in chapter 8, we are rescued by the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit who has united us with the life-giving work of Jesus who was condemned for our sins on the cross. And we are set free from the law of sin and of death by the spirit of life. We are raised up in Christ now to walk in newness of life. Chapter 6, in the likeness of the resurrected Savior. That's what we've been raised up to be. And the purpose of our justification, what, what's, the, what's it all mean? What's the cross? What's it all about? It's so that the righteous requirements of God's law can now be fulfilled in us. And the us is identified as those who do not walk in the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Paul is not contradicting what he has just written in the end of chapter 7 about the flesh being in bondage to sin. Rather, he is showing that in spite of the fact that we still sin as a people of flesh, the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to walk in God's righteousness, which we could not do before. Now we have Christ. Now we have the Spirit of Christ. And it's the Spirit of life here that Paul talked about in verse 3 that has set us free from the law of sin and death and that enables the believer to overcome sin as this chapter will unfold before us. It's going to show us this. The commentary written by Leon Morris is helpful here. Listen to his words. Paul is saying that when the Holy Spirit comes into a person, that person is liberated from bondage to evil and finds a new power within, a power that causes the defeat of sin and leads the liberated person in the ways of goodness and love. At one point I had a bulletin in here, but if you flop over the bulletin and look at the little quote by Naaman T.W. Manton, I think he made an interesting observation about Moses' law. It was right. The righteousness of God is found in that law. But then came man who could not keep the law. So, the power of sin, the law of sin, has power. It has might. It just doesn't have right. But see what the cross has done for us? What the Spirit of Christ has done for us? Now we have both the power and the righteousness. We have the power of Christ himself to walk in the truths of righteousness. That was my edited version because I don't, I don't find my bulletin up here. I want to just close, and 
this fourth verse I want to use as kind of our conclusion this morning. Because several truths come out of verse 4 that I would like us to see in our, just our summary, our concluding thoughts this morning. First, or I would say letter A, we are justified to be sanctified. This is what Paul is telling us. We have been justified by the cross of Christ to be sanctified or made holy. We are saved to walk in righteousness. It's most certainly true that our salvation has delivered us from the condemnation of God that our sins deserve. But our salvation does not end with this ruling from heaven. Just look at how chapter 8 unfolds. The Spirit is given to us so that now we can walk in a manner in this life, contrary to our sinful impulses, to walk in the righteousness of God. The rescue that Jesus accomplished on the cross that the Father sent him to fulfill and that the Spirit has raised us up to live was all done not just to forgive us and grant us eternal life. It was done to make us more like Christ. And the purpose of the gospel is to rescue men from the condemnation then and the bondage of sin. Not just to be saved from sin's condemnation. We're delivered from the bondage of sin. And we are enabled to walk in holiness before the Lord God. We're being remade in the likeness of the risen Savior. And second, or letter B, we are sanctified only by the Spirit. Only by the Spirit. We are sanctified only by the Spirit. This is the powerful truth of Romans chapter 8. It is not by our own disciplines. It's not by our own powers. It's not by our own wisdom. Not by our own devotion. I'm going to just try harder, work harder. It's the power of the Spirit that enables us to do this. And this is why in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it means all things expected of me by Christ. If he commands me to do it, I can do it. Not by my own discipline and strength, but by the power of the Spirit. We are sanctified only by the Spirit. But again, going back to the first point, we are justified to be sanctified or made holy. But to be sanctified, that's going to only happen by the power of the Spirit. And third, or letter C, obeying the law is not optional. Obedience to Christ, it's not optional. And I borrow this thought from James Boyce, who wrote that holiness is mandatory. Holiness is mandatory. Listen to what he writes here. It might take you off guard at first. It is mandatory to follow after Christ to be a Christian. It is mandatory to follow after Christ to be a Christian. He is not saying that it is mandatory to follow Christ in order to make us Christian. He is saying that you cannot be Christian if you don't follow Christ. We are actually saved to follow Christ. And if we say we're saved, but I'm not following Christ, we're pretty much saying Christ was not successful in saving you because we have been saved to follow Christ. Obeying God's law does not make us Christian. Obeying God's law does not keep us Christian. But obedience is what we have been saved to be. Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 10. We know verse 8 and 9. 
We know that by memory. But verse 10 in Ephesians 2 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That means God's doing the work of creating here. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Can you imagine the sovereign God saying, I have prepared all of these good works for Monty. He's not doing them. Oops. That is not our God. That is not how he saves. We are his workmanship. That's the work of Father, Son, and Spirit to save you, to redeem you, created in Christ Jesus. Again, we are in Christ Jesus. Why have you been put into Christ? It's for good works. Obedience to Christ. And God has already prepared beforehand the path of righteousness that we are to walk in. When God saves, he is successful. He who began a good work in you will what? He'll complete it. He'll finish what he started. Father in heaven, as your redeemed people, we give praise to you that you are a God of grace, a God of righteousness, a God of power, a God of love and mercy. And what you determined to do with broken, sinful, vile sinners, you have accomplished. You've done so through your Son and his cross. And by your Spirit, those of us that are here by faith this morning have been drawn by you, by your grace, to see your Son, to come to your Son, and to trust in him for his toning sacrifice on the cross. And by the power of your Spirit and yours alone, We have been raised up with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And your purpose is being identified for us right here in your word so that we can walk in the newness of life. So that we can take on the likeness of the resurrected Savior. You've saved us, in other words, to be like your son. And I pray that as we walk in these days before you, the weeks, the months ahead, you will find us more and more submissive and surrendering to your will, to walk more and more by the power of your spirit as we're finding here articulated in Romans chapter 8. Oh, we love you, we thank you, we praise you for being our God and our Savior in Son's name, Christ's name, amen.